Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of The Casual Criminalist. This one is the Hammersmith Ghost Murder. Oh, what happens here? If you're new, hello there. My name is Simon, and Callum writes me a script. I have that in front of me. I've never read it before. This is what's called a cold read. Uh, we're gonna, th- there's gonna be murders and death. I mean, this is a true crime podcast. You know that. And then afterwards, Jen. Hello. Our wonderful video editor, and I mean, as this is also a podcast, also audio person is going to add in some images and some little clips and some audio and uh, bring everything to life. So let's just jump into it, shall we? Remarkably short introduction. Oh, hey, leave me a review. Click that like button. All that good stuff. And let's go. It was a cold foggy night in the winter of 1803 as a carriage driver guided his horses by lantern light through the narrow country lanes of hammersmith england at the time the london borough was only a village on the city's outskirts one which had recently been plagued by some peculiar paranormal problems are except it hadn't been because paranormal things are not real the clock struck one just as the carriage was passing the tall spire of st paul's church shrouded in fog and silhouetted against the moonlight just then the driver brought the horses to a sudden halt the horses took a cautious step backwards something was in the middle of the road a tall ghostly apparition draped in white and it stood in their way the driver's face turned just as pale as the entities started moving towards them before he could close the distance he leapt from his perch and took off in the other direction leaving his 16 abandoned passengers thoroughly confused when the coachman burst through the doors of the black line in to report his near-death experience it wouldn't have come as much of a surprise to the locals with a pint of ale in his still shaking hand he described the exact same otherworldly being which had been terrorizing the village for weeks simply known as the hammersmith ghost ah yes um what about his 16 passengers <laughs> he just like left them and he's like he goes into the pub he has a beer and he's like well all 16 of them definitely got murdered by a ghost and nobody cared the haunting of hammersmith how might you rightly ask is some 200 year old ghost story oh, it's just a ghost story of course it is because ghosts aren't real it's all stories uh relevant to a show about murder robbery and all kinds of strictly earthly crime a question i also wonder myself because apparently there's a like big cross and i've brought this up a couple of times like uh, there's a crossover between like true crime and paranormal stuff which i always found super strange because i'm like true crime is like it's based on evidence and detectives and all of this stuff and a lot of like some not a lot of but some true crime shows and uh people who like watch true crime they're always like yeah well don't forget to consider ghosts and i'm like why are we considering ghosts it's true crime we're trying to solve crimes or at least you know stick to the facts but uh apparently not weird well stick with this <laughs> and all of those people have just been thoroughly put off this podcast i'm so sorry am i though no well stick with me for a while because what started as a case of paranormal panic would eventually end with a tragedy that would be debated in legal circles for centuries after now that sounds like my sort of thing it's like yeah yeah it was a ghost and then it's like yeah but it wasn't and let's figure it out and spend 200 years talking about it 
Sounds interesting. It began with the sightings of the spirit around St. Paul's Church. Typically, it would materialize from between the hedgerows lining the lanes and fields surrounding along Black Lion Lane. Sometimes it would rise up from behind the churchyard tombstones directly. Descriptions of the spirit varied as well. Some said he had horns. Some said he often manifested drapes in, drapes in calves' skin. And everyone agreed he was creepy AF. Yes. Panic snowballed into full-blown mass hysteria as the locals tried to make sense of the terrifying encounters and the number of reported sightings continued to rise. The leading theory was that this was the restless spirit of a man who slit his own throat the year prior and was now interred in the small graveyard at St. Paul's Church. At the time, it was believed that burying a suicide victim on holy ground was extremely inauspicious as it meant their soul could never be at rest. <laughs> ah, people of the past believing all sorts of crazy <laughs> Although I'm absolutely certain that plenty of people probably believe equally crazy or maybe even this same thing today. These people are stupid. <laughs> now the man was cursed to wander up and down country lanes for eternity. And judging by the reports, he was none too happy about that. It's a good thing that the coach driver had the sense to GTFO that night because this ghost was known for sprinting after its victims. A brewer's assistant named Thomas Groom was even caught by the spirit which grabbed his throat and choked him. Sounds like lazy policing, doesn't it? It's like, yeah, yeah, I was attacked in that lane. The police are like, it's ghosts. <laughs> It's just that old ghost. There's no criminals. Now let's have another donut or whatever 19th century. When was this set? I totally forgot. 200 years ago? 21st, 19th century? Yeah. Whatever 19th century police ate. Like, gruel. I don't know. I don't know. What were donuts back in the day? Worst of all was the story of an unnamed pregnant woman who was confronted by the Hammersmith ghost while walking home alone. It reportedly wrapped its spectral arms around her, causing her to faint from shock like in a Jane Austen novel. A neighbor found the poor woman lying out in the cold hours later and took her home, whereupon she took to bed and never rose again. Apparently, I think I remember making a video about like women, women fainting back in the day. It was mostly just because it was trendy. Like, uh, women just being, like, because we're like, oh, why did women faint all the time in the past? Like, no one faints in the past today. And yeah, maybe it was to do with the corsets being too tight, and that probably was a factor. But also, it's just because it was fashionable. Like, women would be like, oh, no, how alarming, and faint. Just because it was, yeah, trendy. Weird, right? So far, so spooky. But this tale of supernatural terror was about to take a ridiculous turn straight out of a Scooby-Doo script. It was a man in a mask. <laughs> On December the 29th, weeks after the hauntings began, a night watchman named William Girdler was patrolling Beaver Lane, unfortunately named, which ran down one flank of the churchyard when the spirit's pale form rose up from behind the tombstones and started striding towards him. Now, Gerda wasn't quite as skittish as the rest of the townsfolk on account of the fact that he was strapped. He rested a hand on the pistol, holstered his hip, holstered his hip, and shouted at the entity to identify itself. He obviously knows that ghosts can't be harmed by guns. When he walked forward to meet it, suddenly the spectre didn't seem all that keen for a haunting. The Hammersmith ghost turned on its ethereal heels and bolted. Girdler gave chase across the churchyard and noticed that the ghost didn't have the same graceful, weightless gait you'd expect from a disembodied soul. In fact, it was running a bit clumsily, as if its legs were getting wrapped up in its own ghostly garb. Yeah, <laughs> shocking, isn't it? 
The watchman was just a few feet from catching up to the spirit as they reached the far wall of the graveyard when the spirit flew its white shroud up in the air and hopped over the barrier to safety. Girdler could only watch as the entity, now looking markedly less supernatural, ducked into the fields and disappeared. All that was left of its presence was the white pile lying in the grass of the church graveyard. The watchman bent down to inspect it, and it was an ordinary white tablecloth. This sub scooby doo for sure. And also, it really does, I feel, hammer home my point earlier in this episode that it's like blaming it on ghosts is lazy police work because it's not ghosts. The ghost hunt. What was a restless spirit doing wearing a tablecloth, you ask? Well, if it's not already apparent, the Hammersmith ghost was no such thing. He was just some bored local terrorizing neighbors for fun. However, while the haunting of Hammersmith Way may well have been a total farce, the danger of some KKK-looking maniac choking random strangers in the night was very real. Perhaps the idea of hunting down a flesh-and-blood prankster was more appealing to the men of the town than facing off against an actual ghost because Watchman Girdler was now able to boost the ranks of his neighborhood watch. A brigade of new volunteers armed themselves and hit the streets each night, hoping to catch the tablecloth-clad menace in the axe. But the dirt tracks around St. Paul's Church formed a warren of confusing paths which made it easy for the ghosts to slip their grasp time and time again. If I was this Hammersmith ghost chap, I'd be like, well, how about I just, like, you you, you live in Hammersmith. You're probably aware of what's going on because you could just go to the meetings or whatever because no one knows who you are. And they'd be like, well, they're patrolling all around looking for that ghosty guy. How about I just don't go out for a few days or go out somewhere else as my ghosty self? Seems like pretty sensible, right? But now he's like, no, I'll, I'll risk it. Okie doke. There were never enough men to cover every exit. No matter how many nights they hunted him for, the Hammersmith ghost remained free. All that the people living along the country lanes of Hammersmith could do was bar their doors, peer through their window shutters, and pray for the nightmare to end. Which is why, on January the 3rd, one would-be vigilante decided to take matters into his own hands. 29-year-old customs officer Francis Smith, apparently unsatisfied with the progress of the official hunt, decided to become the paranormal punisher. As the sun set that evening, he grabbed his blunderbuss from the wall, loaded and charged it, and steeled himself for a night of ghost hunting. Did this customs officer not get the memo that it wasn't actually a ghost? <laughs> First, he would need a couple of pints for courage, as is the British way. Yes, all of our police, actually, before they go on duty, they have a couple of couple of pints down the local and then head out for to, to walk the beat. That's a lie, as far as I'm aware. So Francis went down to the Black Lion Inn and filled himself up with ale. It was around 10 p.m. at night when the merry vigilante began patrolling the pitch-black lanes, waiting for a flash of white. The watchman, William Girder, stumbled across Smith on his rounds about half an hour later and promised to come back and join forces with him later in the night after he had cried the time. Apparently, people couldn't afford clocks just yet, so it was his job to walk around shouting on the hour. Man, the past was weird. They used to have these people called knocker-uppers, which uh, when, you know, back in the day before alarm clocks were a thing, there was a dude who would, I think it'd just stay up all night or whatever, and in the morning, he'd go around and he'd use like this big pole thing to knock on people's windows and tell them to get up and get ready for work because they didn't have alarm clocks and people didn't know how to get up on time. And I'm like, that's crazy. Something we take so just blatantly ad of a for advantage. Uh, for advantage? What's the phrase? For granted. <laughs> Big brain. Uh, these days was just a massive pain in the ass just like a couple hundred years ago. Crazy. 
Until then, Smith was all alone, creeping slowly down the dirt trails and listening for any rustling in the fields over the hedges. Black Lion Lane was the narrowest of all the surrounding roads, only around four yards wide and flanked by tall hedges, meaning that it was dimly lit at the best of times. Now, in the depths of a winter's night, it was pitch black. Not even moonlight penetrated it, and Francis Smith struggled to even see the wisps of his own breath in front of him. He heard the distant voice of Girdler cry, 11 p.m., and silence returned to the lane. After another moment, footsteps. Someone was approaching from the opposite direction. Who goes there? Francis cried out. The footsteps grew closer. Who are you? I'll shoot! Then the figure drew close enough for him to see a tall spectre, all in white, headed straight for him. Francis' heart stopped. He panicked. He raised the shotgun to his chest and he pulled the trigger. The figure collapsed to the ground, a motionless heap of white in the middle of the lane. Francis had done it. had blasted the spirit right back to the afterlife, and the town of Hammersmith was saved. I get the feeling that the next line is going to begin with a but. But, as the adrenaline subsided, he looked at the figure on the ground in front of him. It began to sink in that this wasn't a pile of ectoplasm. It was very real. Very dead human being. <laughs> yeah, dude. You shot him with a shotgun. I'll be like, I kind of expected the line to be, well, yeah. And then from the center of that white sheet started, you know, just a slowly expanding dot of blood until, well, it was all blood. Because ghosts aren't real for the billionth damn time. Just before we continue with the rest of today's video, let me give a quick shout out. So this is a great service. This is called Truebill. And basically, I don't know. I am absolutely one of those people where it gets the end of the month or not the end of the month because they don't always bill at the end of the month. But you know, throughout the month, it's like, oh, you got charged for this. You got charged for that. You know, those recurring subscriptions. Like, what is this? What have I forgotten about? Truebill help you sort all of that mess out. They allow you to fight back against scammy subscriptions. Truebill is a new app that helps you identify and stop paying for subscriptions you don't need, want, or simply forgot about. I've definitely got them in all three of those categories. On average, people save up to $720 a year with Truebill. On average, that is absolutely insane. And I was thinking, how is that possible? How can you have so many subscriptions? And then I realized, oh yeah, no, that is absolutely easily possible. And that is a huge amount of money that you could be saving every year with Truebill. Because companies make subscriptions hard to cancel, Truebill makes it incredibly simple. Just click your accounts and Truebill will cancel your unwanted subscriptions in one tap. Yes, and Truebill Concierge is there when you need them to cancel unwanted subscriptions so you don't have to. Yeah, I don't know. I've tried to like, there's stuff that I've had on there and it's just been impossible to cancel. I remember before Truebill, you'd be like, how do you even do this? It's like, you've got to cancel your credit card or something. Or like, you're waiting to, you know, if it expires after four years, you know, oh, thank God. <laughs> Finally, I'm free of all those subscriptions that I've been paying for. Uh, yeah, they make it hard. Truebill makes it easy. They've got over 2 million users and together they help them save over a hundred million dollars, which is crazy, and you should get it. Don't fall for subscription scrams. Start cancelling today at truebill.com slash casual. So go to truebill.com slash casual, and it could save you thousands a year. And now back to today's episode. An unfortunate encounter. So let's rewind a little bit to wrap our heads around exactly what we've just witnessed. <laughs> A dude getting brutally shot with a shotgun. Also, what sort of ghost? Like, Hammersmith City ghost is like... Hammersmith City? Where are we? Hammersmith? I don't know. Wherever Hammersmith. I think Hammersmith's in London. 
unless there's another hammersmith but i don't know it's probably a, at this point in town at a time it's probably like a town that later became a part of london because london just grows and it, it grabs everything um what are we talking how did i get here oh, i get so lost why am i so slow oh yeah what's that ghost doing just running towards a guy with a shotgun be like you're not actually a ghost mate you, that that is gonna hurt you you know that one house before that fateful encounter on black lion lane the man lying dead on the floor thomas millwood had stopped by his family home on that very same same street millwood had popped in to see his family for a bit while waiting to collect his wife from a friend's house nearby he came in just in time to wish his mother and father good night then sat down at the kitchen table with his sister for a chat when they heard the night watchman announcing 11 o'clock thomas got up to leave not wanting to keep the missus waiting at this point it's quite important to give a little note on what he was wearing at the time see thomas was a bricklayer and in those days that came with a very particular kind of uniform the wine merchant john locke one of the first people to come running after the gunshot described his clothes as linen trousers entirely white washed very clean a waistcoat of flannel flannel apparently new very white and an apron which he wore around him his trousers came down almost to the edge of his shoes in other words he was dressed head to toe in white kind of like a ghost oh so why are you running towards a guy with a shotgun although i guess it was too dark but he did warn you what are you up to which is why he'd actually been mistaken for the ghost on two separate occasions before once after walking home from the pub at night he told his mother-in-law he had a, had a run-in with a group of three young people riding a carrot riding in a carriage he told the guy at the reins that he was no more a ghost than them and probably in more old-fashioned vernacular threatened to smash his nut in <laughs> when the hunt gained momentum and armed men were prowling the streets his mother-in-law begged him to wear a coat over his uniform to avoid a case of mistaken identity millwood ignored her very prescient warning well that just seems like a a stupid thing to do which is why as he left his family home and stepped out onto black lion lane he found himself at the mercy of a half-cut customs agent with a blunderbuss full of lead it's not known if millwood was ignoring the vigilante's hails or if he just didn't have the time to respond before the latter opened fire either way he took a shot to the jaw god damn that looks that's brutal for no other crime than having fantastically laundered linens the spooky ghost defense as the famous Ray Parker Jr. ballad goes, when there's something strange in your neighborhood, <laughs> you can, I, <laughs> I had no idea who Ray Parker Jr. was, but I immediately know that that is the Ghostbusters song. Who are you going to call? Definitely not Francis Smith, because he'll get smashed on ale and gunned down and innocent. Now began the messy business of deciding what to do with him. As ridiculous as the whole situation was, Smith was quick to admit that he was at fault. When the first onlookers came running down the lane, he was standing over the body, totally distraught. The wine merchant Locke told him to go home and wait to be called by the authorities, but he refused to go. Still in shock, he waited at the scene until they could fetch a constable to arrest him. Locke and some men then lifted the body of Millwood out of the dirt and carried him over to the Black Lion, where they heaved his body onto a table. <laughs> this pub is playing a very important role in today's episode. A local physician was called to examine him, but nobody was under any delusions that he could be saved. Millwood was dead before he hit the ground. The doctor identified the entry wound on the lower left of his jaw. Apparently, the bullet had passed right through it and out the back of his neck, cutting through the spinal marrow on its way. The coroner would later interpret this as a deliberate, callous act of murder. Uh, sort of. I mean, the guy thought he was shooting a spirit. So he doesn't really have the mens rea of the crime there, does he? Because you can't want to wish like 
a harm on a spirit because it's a spirit it's not really possible he definitely killed someone but this is more like manslaughter rather than murder right in my opinion allegedly but can you even call it murder that requires intent why didn't i just read the bloody script which would mean that smith either set out with the express purpose of ending a life that night or at least made the conscious deliberate decision to kill another human being in the moment although did he even think he was shooting a human can you murder a ghost I mean, you can murder a person, you can't murder a ghost, but is intent to murder a ghost enough intent for murder? It's a very good question, which I imagine the courts have not been asked before, and they will answer it in today's episode and probably set a precedent that lasted a good long while, maybe even to today, which could be interesting. The climate of fear gripping the town is definitely something we have to take into account. Perhaps the spectral paranoia got the better of him and he genuinely believed that bullet the bullet would do little to no damage to the incorporeal attacker, which had seemed to manifest out of thin air. That seems like a bit of a stretch, because if he thought it wasn't going to do any damage to this spectre, then why did he have it in the first place? Or maybe he was just terrified of the man beneath the tablecloth and thought he was about to be strangled to death. With all of those thoughts potentially passing through his mind within the few short seconds of the altercation and the split-second decision to shoot, it's difficult to unpack exactly what he was thinking at the time. But nonetheless, that was the job of the jury that was convened at the Old Bailey on the 11th of January 1804. They were called to answer the question, can somebody be held fully accountable for murder if they mistakenly believe their life to be in danger from a spooky ghost and or a bedsheet-wearing strap? I think the difference between the spooky ghost and the bedsheet wearing strangler is really important because, as I said before, like, can you, is intent established if it's not a person? I think the answer is no. So that's a really important point of law, I would say. His defense was that he sincerely didn't intend to harm anyone, and his only motive that night was to lend a hand. Several townsfolk testified that he was a good, mild-mannered man with no grudge against the deceased. But on the other hand, the judge questioned his wisdom in getting smashed on ale and swanning around with a loaded shotgun hunting for what was essentially a daft prankster. And yeah, but did he believe it was a prankster, or did he believe it was actually a, a ghost? He could be believing it's really a ghost, which obviously is silly. But I mean, it doesn't matter if it's silly or not. It matters if he believed it or not. Or wait, does it believe? Does it matter if a reasonable person would believe it? Because there's that complicated thing in law where it's not about whether the person actually believed it, whether a reasonable person would believe it. It's been way too long since I studied this, so I can't remember. <laughs> it doesn't matter. I'm sure it's going to be spelled out for us in the script, which is useful. Because otherwise, this wouldn't be very good, would it? Because it'd just be like Simon guesses at rather than Callum actually researches stuff and presents it to Simon. Why am I talking about myself in the third person? Let's carry on. Uh, quote. In this case, there was a deliberate carrying of a loaded gun, which the prisoner concluded he was entitled to fire, but which he really was not. And he did fire it with a rashness which the law does not excuse. I mean, it's a fair point. Had the Hammersmith ghost himself been caught, the charges would have only amounted to minor misdemeanors for mischief. Given the relatively pedestrian nature of his crimes, a vigilante shotgun execution seems, a, seems just a wee bit disproportionate. And on top of that, some believe that Smith was a little too keen to dish one out. Yeah, if he was like, I'm getting my shotgun and I'm going murdering, it'd be like, oh yeah, maybe he's got some intent right there. He literally said the words, I'm going murdering. <laughs> He didn't. I'm just speculating. But, you know, maybe he had it out for this. He, he wanted to go see some blood. It's like, you know, people who are, like, looking for fights. He's one of these guys. 
The victim's sister actually overheard the confrontation from the family home. She was the first to run out and find her brother dead at the front gate. She said that while Smith did shout out twice, it was all within the span of just a few seconds max. Her brother might not have had time to reply, even if he wanted to, before the trigger-happy ghost hunter took his shot. Still, these things happen. Maybe it all went so fast because Smith was so near to the gate when Millwood emerged from it and never had time to think straight. He had plenty in court. He sympathized with him especially since the default sentence for murder was death by hanging. Oh my. And mandatory dissection at a medical school, which all seems a bit much. Yeah, but if I've been dead by hanging, it'd be like, oh no, I'm really concerned about getting dissected afterwards. I'd be very concerned about the death by hanging part. Although maybe didn't people have weird religious beliefs like back in the past where they'd be like, well, if I get dissected, then I can't go to heaven. Because uh, someone literally interpreted the Bible, which is always a, a path to problems. So, so that he might avoid that fate, the jury was willing to give him the benefit of the doubt. After deliberation, they returned to the courtroom with a verdict of manslaughter, to which the judge replied, Manslaughter? Nobody said you could choose bloody manslaughter! Wait, as I'm, <laughs> let's not ever dramatize it with my added words because this is a quote. Uh, manslaughter. Nobody said you could choose manslaughter. This is a murder trial. Go back to your chambers and don't come out until you have a murder verdict for me. You simpletons. Oh, wait. This. <laughs> now, that, now I know it's not a real quote, Callum. Because jur- jurors aren't allowed to just pick and choose charges as they go along. Unfortunately for our blundering ghost slayer, that meant the full weight of a ver- guilty verdict was about to be dropped on his head. When it was announced, he broke down in tears before the court francis smith would have an appointment with the hangman before the week was out oh my god <laughs> what about an appeal <laughs> cries of the past were crazy it'd be like yeah yeah we're executing you uh sometime tomorrow but i just went to a- <laughs> it's like a nightmare in reality don't what's the average time a person sits on like death row in the states for I feel like it's like 50 years or something. It's not 50 years, but it's many years. I feel like it's the better part of a decade because there's so many appeals and all sorts of crazy stuff. Crazy stuff. Sensible due process stuff because you're going to kill someone. Justice for Smith. But the story doesn't quite end there. If you think death by hanging sounds like an unfair outcome for a genuine tragic misunderstanding, you'll be happy to hear that there was an 11th hour intervention to rescue Smith from the gallows. Excellent. As soon as, yeah, I don't believe this guy deserves to die. He maybe deserves to do a bit of a stretch in prison because it's extremely reckless just going out and about shooting someone while you were drunk and had a shotgun. As soon as the court was dismissed, Smith's representatives began working on a plea to the highest power in the land, the crown. Amazingly, they were so on the ball with this appeal that they received a stay of execution before 7pm that evening. Wow, you got some clout if you can get the king or whoever it was back then to make a decision on that, like before the end of the day? Damn. The public interest in the case was so huge that the powers that be were likely mulling over this clemency deal before the verdict was even handed down. Okay, there we go. So, just a few weeks later, Smith received the letter that would save his life. Oh, wait, I thought he was going to get executed. Oh, okay, there was a stay of execution while they decide, and then they're going to pardon him or whatever. A royal pardon, there we go, which reduced his sentence to one year of hard labor. Yeah, that sounds about fit. That sounds like a pretty uh, fantastic deal for shooting a man dead, whether it was accidental or not. I don't know, Gallon. Those, like a year of hard labor in like 1803 or whatever it's probably going to be pretty goddamn horrible the hammersmith ghost unmasked oh yeah we've got to actually find out who this guy was because it wasn't this uh what was his job like bricklayer or something it's not him he's just wearing white because apparently that's what bricklayers wore in the past for some reason he sounds like a baker or a chef or something 
That answers the probably the most important question of this case. But a far more intriguing one remains. Who the hell was running around terrorizing people wearing bedsheets? It wasn't until an American stoner and his talking Great Dane turned up in the town shortly afterwards that the specter was unmasked. It was old man Graham, a shoemaker, who started the local legend to get back at his apprentices. I'm not making this up, apart from the talking dog thing. The real-life murder case really did start off as a cartoon-level caper. The cobbler John Graham was apparently annoyed at his apprentices for telling scary ghost stories to his children, which kept them up all nights. The response to that is like, stop telling my children ghost stories, or I'll fire you. You work for me. I am your boss. They are my children. Easy. And let that be a lesson to you, Callum. No ghost stories to my children. <laughs> So, of course, he knew the only reasonable way to get back at them was to throw a sheet over his head and scare the lads while they were on their way home from the pub. That's the adult way to deal with such disputes. <laughs> the Cobbler's Vendetta accounts for at least one of the two sightings. As for the rest, maybe Graham got a kick out of being a ghost and decided to make a hobby out of it. Or maybe not, seeing as it was actually him who came forward to pour water on his own wildfire after public interest in the case span out of control. So, once the legend was out of his hands, perhaps he inspired some more violent copycats, or more likely than not, perhaps the whole thing just spiraled out of control as panic gripped the town, meaning that those few limited sightings were blown way out of proportion by a tirade of baseless rumors. Yes, that is almost certainly the case, because that is how it always happens. I mean, it's pretty strange that the pregnant woman who was literally scared to death is never concretely mentioned in any court documents and was never named. Yes, because it didn't happen. Had that actually happened, then it would have definitely factored in to Smith's trial and Graham's punishment, which is never mentioned in any popular records of the case, so we have to assume it was minimal. If it really was a case of senseless mass panic, it wouldn't be the last to grip this superstitious little London town. From the wreckage of that last local legend, a new one was born, one which was, has proven to be a bit more persistent. The Black Lion Inn, which still stands on the same road in Hammersmith, which was long ago absorbed into the London metropolitan sprawl. There we go. I know exactly what Hammersmith we're talking about because it is just a part of London these days. There you'll find a plaque commemorating the incident of 200 years ago, and if the legend is to be believed, perhaps a more unsettling reminder of the day remains there as well. It's said that the ghost of Thomas Millwood, the unfortunate bricklayer whose life was cut short on that fateful night back in 1804, is still trapped within the walls. One time landlord Kevin Sheehy told the BBC back in 2004, quote, We do have some strange goings on in the pub. The chef lives upstairs and has been woken up half a dozen times by someone speaking his name. But there was no one there. Do, 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 do. <laughs> if you're up for a little ghost hunting trip, you can pop in for a pint in the evening and see what happens. But be warned, they have a strict no blunderbuss policy. For obvious reasons. Because it's the law. Don't be wandering around with guns. It's also the U- Don't. It's the UK. No one. I guess people have shotguns. Don't go to pubs with them. It's weird. Wrap up. Whether or not Thomas Millwood's restless spirit really does haunt the Black Lion it doesn't the questions hovering over his death undeniably haunted the legal profession in the uk for a long time almost two centuries in fact that's because the matter of smith's guilt was never really properly resolved meaning that for the longest time self-defense laws were a bit of a gray area in the uk it wasn't until the 1980s that the confusion was cleared up once and for all with the, in the case of a man who was on trial for assault. Very briefly, this defendant thought he was saving a stranger from an unprovoked attack, but in reality, the man he beat down was a shop owner who was actually trying to restrain a thief. 
The ruling in the case was to finally bring a close to that 180-year-old legal question. Yes, you can use mistaken beliefs as mitigating circumstances in your criminal defense. Yeah, and that's what stands today. With that, the questions surrounding the Hammersmith ghost were finally put to rest. Lawyers and ghost hunters alike marked the ruling for its shared significance to their very, very divergent fields. And most importantly, after all that time, Francis Smith was finally vindicated. I imagine his own ghost must have been p pretty chuffed. As a result, we Brits are now free to slaughter each other often, as often as we please, just as long as we're absolutely convinced that the victim was actually a spectral menace from beyond the grave. Yeah, which is going to be really hard. You know, don't try. No one's going to be trying that as a defense for murder. Yeah, yeah, the guy I murdered. I thought he was a ghost, Your Honor. <laughs> All thanks to a ludicrous local legend, a bricklayer's immaculate laundry, and the itchy trigger finger of one of the worst ghost hunters that the country has ever seen. Or, I mean, arguably very good ghost hunter. He got him. He got that ghost. Wasn't a ghost. But there's no such thing as ghosts. So great ghost hunter. Dismembered appendices. Number one. One of the reasons we so we still know so much about the case today is because it was featured in the original true crime publication, The Newgate Calendar, The Malfactor's Bloody Register. Originally, this was a simple register of executions, but eventually it spun out into one of the most popular publications of its day with deep dives into all kinds of weird and shocking crimes that would eventually inspire a whole genre of novels. Several Dickens works included. Nine out of ten historians call it the casual criminalist of its day. <laughs> very nice and very self-flattering, Callum. <laughs> Number two. Twenty years after the incident of the Hammersmith ghost, a new version of the legend started doing the rounds in the superstitious little town. This time the ghost was said to be able to breathe fire. How realistic. <laughs> I, I, I understand why my sarcasm is grating. <laughs> Sorry. Eventually this new version loosely evolved into Spring Heel Jack and urban legend about a demonic humanoid with a superhuman leap said to have terrorized the london area in the late 1830s unfortunately francis smith declined to bring his blunderbuss out of retirement for a showdown with the devil but there's a solid fan fiction in that for anyone who wants it and with that this was another episode of the casual criminalist i guess a short one Either that or I enjoyed this so much that it absolutely blew past. I enjoyed it anyway. As always, thank you so much for listening or watching. If you are listening as a podcast, please do consider leaving us a five-star five star review. And uh, if you're watching this on YouTube, there's a like button, there's a subscribe button. You can use both of those. Leave me a comment as well below if you've got suggestions. I don't actually, I mean, don't. I don't know if Callum actually reads the YouTube. Because Callum now just comes up with all the topics. I just gave up. I was like, Callum, I like being surprised. And you're really good at coming up with topics. So I just let him do his thing. And but maybe he reads them. I don't know. No guarantees. Brilliant plugs, Simon. And I'll see you next time.